Good morning. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Vas Bednar. And you're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. As always, we're live in studio here at the University of Toronto, and here's what we're detangling this morning. The City of Toronto is trying to make sense of the violence that happened last week at Young and Finch. We will speak with Vice's Manisha Krishnan about the grossness of the online manosphere and how some reformed misogynists are speaking out about the violent subculture they used to be a part of. I had not heard the phrase manosphere until last week. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, We've also touched on social media and democracy a few times on the show. Bots, fake news, and cyber attacks are all obvious threats to our democratic process. Then we're going to speak to the Toronto Star's democracy reporter, Sabrina Nanji, about potential election law changes in Canada and what to watch out for as the provincial election cannibalizes your newsfeed. Lastly, we will be joined by Sharon Blackie. She's a writer, psychologist, and mythologist. She's going to discuss with us her new book, The Enchanted Life. Blackie's book teaches us why re-enchanting our lives with nature in a time of smartphones and city living is actually a radical act. Who knew? A little bit about the show if you're just tuning in. Every week we make the Complex Colloquial. You can follow our show on Twitter at DetangledCIUT, and you can also subscribe on iTunes to the podcast version of this live broadcast. Does that Mm -hmm. sound good? Sounds great. Okay, I'm a bit sniffly, but stay with me. We'll be okay. (laughs) All right, let's detangle it. So we didn't find any Kleenex, but we are joined (laughs) on the line by Manisha Krishnan. She's a senior writer at Vice, and she's written about the Toronto van attack perpetrators and perpetrator and his perceived ties to violent, misogynistic internet subcultures. Uh, In her new piece, if I can still count it as new on this Monday morning, How Lonely Men Are Radicalized Online and Turn Their Rage into Violence, Manisha interviews ex-members of the Manosphere about what goes on in these internet subgroups, these forums, and why it can be so hard to get out of them, to to leave. And that's what we're going to chat a bit about with her. Hey, Manisha. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So maybe we should start by very uh, swiftly getting our listeners up to date about what we know about Alec Maniason and why we are using words like manosphere and and red pillars uh, in the wake of this van attack. Yeah, so I mean, there's still not a ton of information out yet, but what we do know is that uh, Maniason, prior to allegedly carrying out the van attack, a, a post on his Facebook page appeared that sort of called for the incel rebellion um, and praised Elliot Roger, who carried out a massacre in La Isla, California in 2014 and sort of left behind this very detailed manifesto of how he hated women and essentially wanted to punish women for the fact that he was still a virgin. And that's sort of where this term incel comes from. Um, It stands for involuntarily celibate. So it's sort of men who resent women because they're not getting laid, in a nutshell. So tell us about the men that you spoke to for your, your vice piece. Why are they coming out as, as reformed misogynists and, and, and talking to you and people, uh, other media outlets, about what they, uh, I guess, experienced and, and saw on the Internet or participated in? Yeah, so... 
Um, I wanted to sort of do a piece. I mean, you know, of course, when it's a story like this and it's a huge story, everybody's sort of chasing the same angles. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to talk to people who had been a part of, if not the incel community, a part of this sort of online misogyny subculture and just get that perspective of why they would even sort of go down that path and join such a subculture and then sort of what their what their reflections on are on um you know having left so i actually got a pitch from a guy who wanted to write an essay about being like his life in the manosphere and Mm. sort of his life in um joining these pickup artist groups and paying like a lot of money to take these seminars and learn how to essentially harass or pick up women um so i decided i didn't really necessarily um want to let him just write his own essay um i wanted to use it as part of a bigger story that provided more context so he was one of the people that i interviewed um and interestingly enough he said he didn't really regret um joining those pickup artist groups because he felt it did actually improve his confidence um nonetheless he says that he feels a lot of shame um, for being part of those groups because he, he said, you know, some of the people who may have read my post or who may have messaged me could be people who go on to carry these types of attacks. Yeah. How uh, how are incel groups tied to the pickup artist industry and, and how expensive are these seminars? Um, the seminars, I believe, can be over a grand oh. um, just for like a three-day seminar. Three and days of learning how to harass women at the mall. Y- yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll see them at, like, Eaton Center or whatever. Yeah. Um, as far as the incel community and um, pickup artists, I mean, Roosh V, who's one of the most infamous uh, pickup artists yeah. or seduction artists, um, he tweeted about this attack and basically said if Minasin had been able to sleep with a couple of, quote, Toronto Tinder sluts, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so you can see, like, yeah. the... You know, they may not be exactly the same. I mean, perhaps incels are more radicalized, and I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if you can say that necessarily. But, mm. but they clearly, there clearly is an ideology there. There's a common thread of a resentment and disrespect towards women. Mm. Um, and you know, these are people who have problems, obviously, with women and with having romantic sexual encounters, and blame women for that. And so I think you can say that's true for both of the groups. Have you guys ever got hit on by one of these pickup artist folk? I don't think I have, actually. I've minimized my time at the Eaton Center, so I feel like that's put my chances down. Have you? Yeah, Yeah, I have. When I first moved to Toronto when I was like 24 or something, I got hit on by this very strange man at the Bay, and he gave me this weird card, and I didn't know what was going on at the time. But uh, in in hindsight, that is what was going on. It didn't work, first of all. So (laughs) these pickup artist seminars are not good at their their promise. I mean, just stepping back from that, it is fascinating to – it was fascinating in your piece, Manisha, to – read about and just take a second and think about this subculture of men that are also admitting it's like s- it, there's so much kind of social anxiety or that they're so fearful or that it's so difficult to speak to women like is this a product of the digital age as well like you're you're you know in an environment especially when you're going through school where there's a lot of dialogue and familiarity you know you're like you're coming of age and like it can be an awkward time but you're also around people that are 
in theory, I don't know, fairly familiar to you, right? Like it was like, I don't know. Yeah. This, this idea that women are, you know, coming from not outer space, but that it's like there's this huge gulf between the sexes yeah. that has to be bridged through, you know, courses and learning is, you know, I, I struggle to understand and fully appreciate that. So it's important to to read about it. And it's important that this guy and, and others are willing to share their experiences. Yeah, there was a lot of element of fantasy, it seems, like, you know, fantasizing about women who you maybe talked to or were friends with um, about having this romantic relationship with them. And I've heard that in some of these incel communities, fantasy does play a huge role because they have such limited actual experiences with women. Um, So that is a really interesting kind of element to it. But yeah, you do kind of wonder what is the solution here, because obviously there is an element of just extreme social anxiety or just lacking the social skills to actually talk to women or have relationships with them. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of fantasize and create, like make this, you know, turn us into these weird mythological creatures. Um, And I think a lot of the misogyny actually comes into play because, you know, women are then then objectified. Mm Mm-hmm. So is the issue then that, you know, there's I think there's always been men that have felt this way about women, mm-hmm. um, probably lots of them for long centuries, uh, millennia. But what we're seeing right now with the Internet and, and these forums where men are allowed to get together, allowed to is probably not the best term, but are getting together and propagating this further and maybe like luring in new folks to their way of thinking and then... Uh, moving forward, like pushing violence as part of this and, and uh, it, incel rebellions, like is the last, you know, 10 years and, and, and our access to Internet and these type of spaces allowed this to, to just sort of go into high gear? Yeah, I, I mean, it's so hard to say because, you know, one of the things that I always think of is these public, murders like these public mass killings are you know relatively rare but what's not rare is just femicide and you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they say that a woman is killed by her partner male partner once every six days in Canada and that actually happens all the time and I think I don't think we can argue that misogyny doesn't play a role in that either mm-hmm. um so I don't so yeah it is it's, it's tough to say but I think one one thing we can definitely say for sure is congregating online to discuss how lonely you are and how much you resent women because you're not having sex is definitely not a healthy way to deal with whatever feelings of inadequacy you're having. And yeah. I think that, you know, the the expert that I interviewed who's a, a sociology prof at U of T said that there should be these men's clubs, like essentially where you go and hang out with men and have a drink and talk in real life and complain about your life if you want to. Yeah. But at least you're getting some actual social socialization instead of sort of just increasingly being exposed to more radical ideas online. Yeah, and support and comfort. I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. I've to my to my earlier points to you, it's not like I've never being shy about speaking to a man or, you know, had a crush on someone and not being sure how to bridge that. But that I feel like that's something more natural and happy that you can confer with female peers. Um, something in the article that uh, resonated a little bit more with me was the group that identifies as neat. 
So maybe we could talk a bit about um, not in employment, education, or training, and how this type of language kind of connects and maybe roots some of these subgroups in the struggles of lone men and kind of having weaker connections to the to the economy. Yeah, you know what? That was such an interesting angle. I, I, I almost feel like that could be parsed out in its own story. But basically, this yeah. expert said that when um, acts like this happen, she connected it to capitalism, essentially, um, and said that these incels are self-aware and they identify themselves as not employed or in education or training. And that is a deep source of unhappiness and inadequacy for them. Um, and I think there has been some some written about Alex Minasin's like resume and how it was pretty spotty for somebody of his age, and he just wasn't really successful mm-hmm. career wise. Mm-hmm. So um, what this expert was saying was, you know, when we have when you see men in your lives who are over a period of time just kind of not doing anything, either education wise or career wise, that is a time a good time to sort of intervene if you can. She was more directing that at parents and and like I guess loved ones, but. Because that can be sort of the source of somebody um, just be, becoming really unhappy, and then that can lead to other paths. One thing I thought was interesting in your piece was that there was some of the, the people you talked to, there was kind of this idea of, of being lured into these groups, like that they they would read one thing somebody posted that seemed pretty innocuous but like interesting and then all of a sudden they're kind of going down this rabbit hole uh where where uh other forum members that they trusted are now sort of throwing more violent more extreme views at them and then all of a sudden their whole like ideology and worldview is being shaped by this mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and then i guess we mentioned this off the top that it that it's hard to get out and sort of reformulate your brain once you have like lived this online experience for a long time can you just maybe talk a little bit about about that and maybe what getting out is like yeah so i mean it's interesting because um one of the guys that i talked to he basically said he he said i was a misogynist but at the time you wouldn't have been able to have told me that like he's like Mm -hmm. i did get called out for it but i didn't believe it he's like i just simply did not believe that i was a misogynist and so i would push back to anyone who said that and say you're overly sensitive like you're a snowflake you don't know how to take a joke um and yeah he had a really weird realization because i guess he struggled with mental health issues um and he caught himself online like making fun of a celebrity a female celebrity who had had a very public meltdown he said and um you know just whatever just talking smack about her and degrading her and and then somebody close to him sort of pointed out the hypocrisy that he himself is a mental health advocate but was going after this person simply because she was a woman and he said for him that was like a weird light bulb moment um but yeah it is really interesting the other guy i talked to who was more into pickup artistry he said gradually he just started reading more and more red pill material and you know, in a sense, he just started believing it. And he's like, my, my, I guess my thoughts just became increasingly more and more um, red pill. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was kind of all he was consuming. Um, I don't know. But even talking to him, it was hard because he refused to do a phone interview with me because he was scared. Mm -hmm. So we had to do it via email. And he was still very, it was almost like he was reluctant to admit that this 
ideology he subscribed to was misogynist. You know, mm-hmm. he kind of really couched it. Um, and so, and he was sort of saying, well, you know, I dabbled in pickup artistry, but I don't fully regret it. And, you know, it was just interesting because to me, I actually don't know if he's fully come to terms with um, with what those groups really stand for. So it's like he knows this was weird and was probably shocked by the Alec Alec Maniason thing and was like, yeah. I should talk to someone about this, but then also yeah. not like 100 um, percent convinced that it's wrong. So do you yeah, think, exactly. yeah, I mean, in the wake of this attack, and do you expect, and I know we haven't seen this yet, um, politicians or the cops or, you know, leadership anywhere to, to fully tie or if or when tie these um, misogynistic subgroups and, and, and Alex Post and, um, you know, just all of this to the attack? Like, are we going to see them classify this as misogynistic terrorism or are we just going to kind of keep getting while there's no straight line between the motive and the crime? Um, Yeah, I I highly doubt that we'll hear any politicians using the term misogynistic terrorism. But (laughs) But that'd be so dramatic. (laughs) Yeah, it would be super dramatic if they just quoted Jessica Valenti. But um, I think what what may happen is a lot more details will come out in um, you know whatever happens and if there's a trial or what have you mm-hmm. I mean he may plead guilty um, but still whatever is revealed in court um, I think that may give politicians a bit more of something to kind of grab onto. I I think as of right now I would be surprised if they would really make a lot of statements just based on the one Facebook post um, I think we'd probably need to see a bit more come out but I don't know. I honestly, I don't know because I'm so jaded about whether or not this will actually change the conversation. Obviously, you hope it will, right? Mm-hmm. But I just also think we've been through we've been through situations like this before. I mean, we had the attack, we had the Quebec mosque shooting, and after that, there's been so much Islamophobia. So you are you are really skeptical that something even as horrific as this is will actually change the conversation. And if you look at what some of our national newspaper columnists are talking about, um, they're not really willing to to talk about this as, as a misogynistic act. You're absolutely right. We will not say their names. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Manisha. Thank you for having me. Have, Have a, a great, great day. day. Listeners, you can follow Manisha on Twitter at at Manisha Krishnan and read her in Vice. After the break, we're going to discuss whether Canada can successfully police and govern social media advertising ahead of critical elections, in particular the Ontario provincial election, which kicks off in not very long, just a few days, about a week and a half. Here is Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. Dirty computer walking by If you look closer, you'll recognize I'm not that special, I'm broken inside Crashing slowly, the bugs are in me Baby. 
Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Vass Bednar. That was Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're joined on the line by Sabrina Nanji, the Toronto Star's democracy reporter. Good morning, Sabrina. Oh. Having me. Oh. oh. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah. So what we're going to be talking about is social media campaigning, um, about, especially in the provincial election that's about to come up. So... First up, what kind of social media action are you expecting to see or already seeing uh, when it comes to Kathleen Wynne, Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath trying to lure uh, Facebook users and, and just overall general Ontarians on the internet uh, to their to their campaigns? Yeah, um, so I guess like the interesting thing about the provincial election coming up on June seventh is that we're actually going to see the like what the advertising what advertising is going on on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the first, I guess, general election that we're having that Facebook is letting Canadians view the ads, uh, political ads that are running. So basically, you can just go on to the Ontario Liberal Party page or Ontario NDP Party page and. There's like a little button and you can click view ads and essentially those are all the ads that are running on the website. And is um, this, sorry to yeah. interrupt you, is this part of like Facebook's uh, election integrity initiative or is this brought forward from provincial or regulation? Yeah, is this a legal, like what's the prompt basically? Because it is exciting and that is good, but kind of how, how did we get there? Yeah, I mean, like, so Facebook does have a Canadian election integrity initiative. Um, it's, it's sort of aimed at the parties, uh, so this would be separate from that. Um, this has sort of come about, it's one of the measures, uh, you know, Facebook's been dealing with a lot of scandals, uh, I should say, and um, this is one of the efforts that they've taken to sort of, like, boost transparency and, and accountability. Um, I mean, the, the ads and micro-targeting that, that can go on um, on social media and Facebook essentially would allow like a political party to show someone um, an ad that maybe your neighbor might not see. Like if you care about the minimum wage, um, you might see ads um, about the minimum wage, right? Or policies about the minimum wage. And so essentially when you click view ads, you can now see everything that um, anyone on Facebook would see from these parties. Well, and it also has the little notes at the bottom that says why you're seeing this, right? So you right, be, yeah. it says if you know if you see an ad about new seniors care initiatives from the Ontario Liberal Party, for example, underneath the ad, as Facebook now allows, it says you're seeing this because you're 55 plus, or you're seeing this because you live in this neighborhood, or you're seeing this because yeah, you've liked this other thing, which I think is the most fascinating part of this, right? Like we actually get to see these algorithms in action and mm-hmm. and also, Facebook's very sophisticated advertising, um, whatever, team <laughs> at work. Right, yeah, exactly. So, recently, Canada's privacy commissioner announced he's launching a formal investigation into Facebook, uh, which is in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Do you think that Canadians are sufficiently prepared to 
filter out fake news or, you know, perhaps um, take in micro-targeted ads in a way that they're a little bit more sophisticated about it? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a very good answer. I think that it's, uh, they're definitely like have, Canadians have like more tools now to be able to make those decisions. Whereas, you know, like before there weren't, like we weren't really seeing anything that was going on. So I think that now that there's like an awareness, um, people can, you know, like, like see what is actually, or at least part of what's going on. Um, maybe now they're, uh, thinking about these questions more. Um, I know that, I don't know if you guys recall, but very briefly, there was the hashtag Crooked Christine that popped up um, during the Ontario PC mm-hmm. leadership race. Um, and even if just like a search on the hashtag on Twitter, I saw some people uh, even questioning the, the hashtag itself, like what the intent was behind it. And um, it, it just sort of, uh, I mean, to me, maybe suggested that people are sort of uh, asking questions about bots on social media, amplifying certain messaging um, or fake news. So uh, there are these these programs. You mentioned Facebook Election Integrity Initiative. That's one um, that includes like a media literacy program. And so there are like a lot of efforts now to sort of um, raise awareness about these things. And even in schools, like teaching kids, I think it's maybe like a good starting point that a lot of people have um have uh, have said is like a good idea, I guess, to, to start in schools and uh, and show uh, younger folks like how to sort of suss out a lot of this information because, I mean, they're the ones that use social media more and so they're they're seeing this um, a lot more. Hashtag one hundred and one. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're totally right that awareness is the way to go, especially seeing Facebook post record profits and that, you know, the fact that that scandal and and data breaches haven't turned people away from using the platforms. I mean, Twitter um, had pledged they were going to put a social media ad archive online. They missed they missed their deadline. So I think in Canada, we're seeing more calls for social media governance um, instead of, you know, maybe these more political partnerships uh, and hope for compliance from from broader tech companies. Um, we've only been talking about Facebook so far. What about YouTube? What about Snapchat? Instagram what about these other vehicles? And too. Instagram, yeah. And and kind of what are you anticipating? What kind of activity might be there as, you know, maybe these ads will be or maybe kind of shadier parties will be pushed away from Facebook, kind of where might we see them popping up and, and how just how vigilant does does someone with a smartphone uh, need to be? Yeah, um, I mean, we have been talking about Facebook, and they sort of like borne the brunt of a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just Facebook; it's like uh, you know, Twitter um, uh, got a lot of flack for fake accounts um, and and bots amplifying certain messaging. Um, I think you know, YouTube, uh, Reddit, like they're very popular popular sites as well. Uh, I think. Like, both of those are top five for sure. Um, Instagram is actually owned by Facebook, and I just mm-hmm. personally have been seeing a lot of uh, ads related to the Ontario election crop up on, on Instagram. And I guess just a side note, Facebook says that their view ads button is supposed to show you the Instagram ads too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I guess keep, keep an eye out for that. Um, I do think that uh, that more is um, it's, it's maybe not so much that people are being, like, inundated. People are... Uh, seeing these more and I guess maybe becoming more um, aware that, that this is happening and 
Um, it's even just a way that politicians communicate, like, with constituents, like, as well, like, through um, through Twitter. Like, they'll post, you know, clips of themselves, like, from question period or, or things like that. So it's, like, even just beyond, like, the advertising and um, micro-targeting. Oh, I mean, for sure, especially with Facebook. I mean, uh, following the Doug Ford campaign, he posts – that's where he live streams all of his um, – p- press mm-hmm. conference announcements uh that's where he's uh maybe not specifically facebook but that's where twitter's where he's made a lot of his public statements so that is definitely true um I wonder, and, and we talked about Facebook and uh, its <laughs> various privacy issues uh, or fake news issues with uh, past guest Jane Litvinenko recently. And I mean, her point is that Facebook is just so much bigger, right? Than and so much more profitable than than Twitter or Reddit. Um, and 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 you know, with power comes responsibility, and that's why. Uh, we're we're sort of forcing more of this upon Facebook right now, or there's public pressure for them to to uh, disclose more about their advertising system. I wonder, I mean, because when I think of Twitter users, I feel like there's it's a, and I don't want to say like too many good things about Twitter users because Twitter can be awful too. But it seems like it's a bit more of a sophisticated audience. Like when you're saying the people that were pointing out the crooked Christine hashtag. That's probably lots of people that were, you know, PC party members or uh, involved in the various campaigns from what I remember. Whereas I think that lots of the average Facebook users, especially people that spend a lot of time on the platform, might be more complacent with what they take in. Is that something that you you have found or is that something that we need to be thinking about? I mean, Facebook is definitely like by far the most popular and I think used most often (coughs) just talking to some of the people that uh, I guess just like average users um, you know they do feel I mean certainly some people I've talked to like feel sort of like betrayed and a bit shocked Uh, I think most people expect um, it's kind of funny like most people I talk to sort of expect some type of um, targeting to happen uh, or I guess maybe maybe like a, a certain use of their data uh, for commercial marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. People expect that. But when it comes to, you know, elections or democracy or their political beliefs, it's sort of like uh, or even the ballot, like people get their backs up. And so I think people do feel genuinely um, a bit betrayed uh, and and somewhat shocked. But I, I don't like, I mean, just based on their uh, earnings, recent earnings call, Facebook itself, doesn't seem to be hurting very badly uh, from this. Like they they reported more users, monthly users and daily users, and even advertisers. Like there were rumblings that advertisers would sort of like leave the platform. Um, if anything, it's just showing off how good they are at advertising, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So, you know, you have your eyes. You're a democracy reporter. You are going to be, like, ultra-focused on this sort of stuff uh, going into the election, which, as I said, starts uh, next Wednesday. What are you going to be looking for? Uh, I think definitely monitoring uh, the ads that are going on, like what's going on on social media is going to be something. Um, It's, uh, I think, easier for reporters and researchers and academics to do now that we're seeing ads, although we don't really get to see everything. Um, It it is like a huge help. Uh, I think that the difference between, you know, what what people are seeing in ads versus like what's being reported in the news, uh, that that's Mm -hmm. something that's that. maybe people should keep an eye out, you know, like out on the stump, you hear a lot of uh, 
I guess maybe the election talk and to sort of cut through some of that is uh, is where I guess reporters and that's sort of like our job to help sift through some of that. And have you seen a bunch of discrepancies between what it says in ads and, and what's what's in the news? I mean, is <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I guess like, yeah, like on social media, you just get to see like a little clip. And so, you know, the parties, they'll want to promote like the good aspects of um of their policies, like so, for instance, liberals, like you'll see things like free tuition, and that doesn't really tell you the whole story, right? Like mm-hmm. that's just a very, there's just two words, really. But they sound so good. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you think that more legislation is on the horizon? Um, I know right now in the United States, um, there has been debate around the Honest Ads Act, which would require online platforms to make a public archive of election ads kind of like what we're speaking of with Facebook that would include a description of the target audience, et cetera, searchable by the name of the purchaser of the ad, name of the candidate, the issue, or by date. I mean, that sounds like a lot of detail. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's okay. In Canada, we often, we have a bit of Me Tooism. It's not the worst thing. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll have different teeth. Do you Do you see us getting towards a Canada where we are requiring platforms to have a full live public archive and that we actually achieve more transparency with the advertising that's happening online, be it during elections or kind of for anything, or do you anticipate platforms will, will resist um, anything, anything that sounds like that? Um, Yeah. Like the, the honest ads act in the U S like we have different, um, we have different election laws and and all of that, so so it doesn't yeah. like completely apply. But yeah, like there's a lot of there's like a lot of interesting things that being talked about like all over in regards to legislation for these companies and platforms. Um, it's it, it sort of sounds like maybe everyone is expecting that there's going to have to be some type of regulation, and I think even the the companies are maybe uh, not as you know uh, resist resisting that. Like it, it does mm-hmm. seem like. They are uh, realizing that they do have a role to play in this as well, and and same with governments too. So, I do I do think that that sort of seems to be the way things are going now. Uh, you know, it's, the, the privacy commissioner here is, is also talking about uh, the gaps in in our laws when it comes to, to privacy and social mm-hmm. media. And so, what that will look like, I guess, remains to be seen. Um, and and I guess whether it will be done in time to have an impact on 2019 is another question as as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that um, it, it seems to be something that everyone has uh, accepted will happen. And it sort of seems to be something that every aspect that of players that are involved needs to tackle this. Like, you've got the news literacy that's sort of like the citizen's responsibility to suss out fake news. Um, the government has a responsibility to sort of... Um, have some bottom line regulation and, and Facebook and Twitter and those companies also have responsibilities. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess like we're, we're sort of seeing action somewhat, uh, or at least starting, um, for, from the different groups that are, people that are involved. All right. Thank you so much, Sabrina. We will keep an eye out for, uh, more of your writing in the Toronto star on this. And we will think of you every time we see a targeted political ad on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Listeners, you can follow Sabrina on Twitter at Sabrina Nanji and read her democracy work in the Toronto Star. Next up, we will speak to the author of An Enchanted Life, Unlocking the Magic of the Everyday. Her name is Sharon Blackie, and she will join us 
very shortly. Here is Heavenly by Pale Waves. You're listening. FM. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. <laughs> and I'm Vass Bedner. That was Heavenly by Pale Waves. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're joined via Skype by writer, psychologist, and mythologist Sharon Blackie to discuss her brand new book, The Enchanted Life, Unlocking the Magic of the Everyday. Her previous book, If Women Rose Rooted, was the 2006 winner of the Nautilus Book Award. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We're building up to a storm here on the uh, rocky west coast of Ireland, so it's all very exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. So why are people in, in Western cultures, especially us, uh, you know, city-living, smartphone-addicted folks, so in need of, of what you call re-enchantment? 
Well, because I think often we think that we're thriving, but we're not. Uh, we might be living longer these days than any previous generation, but we're really not any happier while we're doing it. Uh, we're still seeing rates of anxiety and depression skyrocketing in most Western countries, and uh, we're living through uh, what I call the un the unendurable everyday. Uh, and so many of us don't feel that we really belong to the world. We're very much alienated from it, from ourselves, from society, from the black feathered wisdom of a crow or the natural cycles and seasons of the land we inhabit. So in your in your book, you say enchantment isn't about magical thinking. It's about being fully present in the world. We often ask our guests to, uh, quote, detangle something. Can you detangle what enchantment is? Yeah, I think to me, it's mostly an attitude of mind. It's it's a way of approaching the world, which I firmly believe that anyone can learn to adopt. And I think it's something that many of us recognize from when we were kids, that sense of wonder, of possibility. Um, and it yeah, it is very much about being present in the world. Um, it's about a very vivid sense of belongingness to a rich and many-layered world. Um, it's a very profound and and wholehearted participation in life, in the adventure of life. Um, sure, it's about embracing wonder and mystery and intuition and the mythic imagination, uh, but it's also deeply embodied. It's it's about showing up. It's about being absolutely grounded in place and community. It's about it's about living very vividly, basically. Living vividly, very vividly. Um, I like yeah. that. I like that. You really detangled it there. Um, Sharon, we, we mentioned very quickly in your introduction that you have a background in science and psychology as well. How has that personal history um, influenced how you've tried to kind of remedy unenchantment? Well, I started off in an all arts background at school, you know, a, a lover of literature and fairy tales and mythology. And then I went to a very um, strongly scientific subject, psychology. Uh, my education then, I, I would say, like most Western traditional education in our schools was a process of active disenchantment. Uh, <laughs> it was designed to make me believe that anything which couldn't be empirically verified wasn't real, mm. uh, dismissed as mere imagination. And, and I thought mere imagination, because to me, imagination was life and mm -hmm. was perfectly real. It's what keeps us alive and thriving and whole. And, and that's how I find my way back out of that particular disenchantment when I was a student, uh, through imagination, in particular, the mythic imagination, imagination, myth, story. I see those as the bridges which connect us back to the world, which help us to see it as alive, as dreaming and as imagining too in its own way. So if our society is, as you, as you say, uh, thoroughly disenchanted, what are the, I mean, you talked a little bit about the, the impacts of this on the individual, that although we may be living longer, we're not necessarily happy, we're not engaged, we're, you know, just on this maybe uh, capitalist journey to the grave to be uh, <laughs> very gloomy about it. What, what are the, the impacts you see on, on a larger scale um, of, of this sort of shift of humanity to away from, away from Earth and, 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 and enchantment? 
Yeah, well, I think that 2,000 years of, of Western culture and, and modern Western philosophy has taught us to think of ourselves as completely separate from uh, not just that, but superior to the natural world around us. Uh, we think it's our playground. Uh, we think it's it's a resource for, for us to plunder. And so really, to be blunt about it, the planet is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, we're losing habitat, we're losing animal species, the oceans, forests, and, and all because we don't really see ourselves as part of the tangled web of life on this planet. We sit and watch it all happen as if it's some kind of movie or TV program. Uh, we really don't think it has anything to do with us. And that can't end well. So to me, we have to change the way we approach our lives and to reconstruct our way of, of being in the world from the inside out. And that's what the book is about. How do you actually do that? How do you fall in love with the world and in the process fall in love with your own life uh, all over again? Um, in pointing to that hyper-individuality that we are experiencing as a, as a society, I mean, that's an oxymoron, you know, that we observe in yeah. our society... Um, one of the things you write about is the cultural myth of the hero's journey that informs our competitiveness. Where do you see that myth leading us and what are the mythical misfits doing to to change it? And I guess what is yeah, a myth mythical idea. misfit? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that old idea of the hero's journey is intensely individualistic, isn't it? It's based mm -hmm. on the values of competitiveness rather than cooperation, the values that our culture tells us we should live by. And it's not about being the best we can be. It's about wanting to be better than everybody else. So mm -hmm. everybody wants to be Harry Potter and no one wants to be a muggle. Um, and so, you know, in the book, I talk about post-heroic journeys and they're not focused on individual glory. They're focused on community, on diversity. So it's not about slaying the dragon, but about harnessing his special skills and making him part of the team. Um, post-heroic journeys are about understanding when we've taken enough, uh, not on always striving for more. Uh, and they're not about strength, but are about compassion and so I think there are plenty of people out there already who understand the need for new stories to live by and yeah those are the ones that I call the mythical misfits they're the ones who've kind of fallen out of the myths and stories we're told by society that we should live by uh, the ones who say well if the dominant cultural myth is failing us and failing the planet let's transform it why not you know humans have always been myth makers and uh, so it's the people that I call the mythical misfits who I think begin to kickstart the transformation of the world and begin to imagine more sustainable and, and meaningful ways of living. Well, speaking of, of sustainable ways of living, you you say in your book, and I thought that this was uh, was so interesting and, and wise, is that, that simple living is often a more radical choice. I mean, it's it it makes sense for us to we're told to you know personal brand get on the internet social media marketing uh, I mean and that's sort of one step ahead of you know all of the other disenchantments that we <laughs> that we experience mm -hmm. and and you say when we slow down and live more simply we use fewer resources both our own and our planets. Um, this is a bit of a joke, but we, <laughs> when we were booking this segment with you, you we were talking to you over Skype because you live in a place uh, where you don't have cell phone or phone service. So, I mean, I guess I just w wanted to, you know, simple living and, and the radical choices you have made are just are very interesting. And I wonder if you could speak speak to that. Yeah, I do actually have a cell phone. It's just that it doesn't function very well. Um, but I, but the the point is, I don't need that and a landline too, because you know one contraption is enough. Uh, and I guess in a sense that's what I'm advocating in the book that that people 
that we examine all of our choices, you know, about every, everything that we do in our daily lives, everything that we purchase, every, uh, every minute that we spend doing something to ask ourselves whether that is serving life, you know, whether that's a good thing, whether we really need all the gadgets to evaluate the cost to the planet of having the gadgets. So it's about challenging that cultural mythology also, which uh, tells us we should measure our lives by economic success. Uh, and instead think about measuring by what gives us personal meaning and what allows us to build um, authentic and fulfilling relationships, not just with other humans, but with the, with the living world around us. So it's all about just standing still at every juncture of the day and saying, is this really what I want to do? Is this a good thing? Does this serve life? Does it serve the planet? Does it serve me? Does it serve my community? Rather than just, you know, eating up all of the stuff we're told about what we must buy. It's beautifully put. Um, so in your book, you also the book interacts with the reader uh, in a few different ways. You you ask the reader as they go through to to make lists of their disenchantments or to record a dream journal, uh, various sort of like step by step uh, procedures. Why did you choose to include this sort of uh, didactic technique in, in your book? Because I think it's really easy to read a book like this, which takes you through some quite complex issues and ideas and, you know, to think it's all very fine and nod your head all the way through, but never actually to do anything as a consequence, uh, never to make any changes. So it all just stays inside your head. And I think it's really important to translate idea into action. I'm not much interested in in kind of theoretical living and also sometimes I think people who are already worn out by just by daily life can be exhausted by the idea of what might on the surface seem to be a you know a set of really big changes so part of it was because I really wanted to show people how easy it is how you can change your way of being in the world and lead yourself to that wonderful state of falling in love with the world all over again beginning with just a very few very simple things which are actually also really enjoyable so you know self-help is always a difficult genre isn't it and um, mm. and sometimes it can seem a little bit trite but I think the exercises and the suggestions in the book are very much tied to to the heart of the argument which is about 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 being present uh, a final question we have um, I hope you don't think it's 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 trite but we've spoken <laughs> on the show in the past about the tumbler witch which is sort of um, not quite a meme, but kind of, you know, an online personality. People identify with, you know, being a witch. Kind of the question of our generation isn't, uh, are you a Betty or a Veronica? It's like, are you a witch or a mermaid? Um, and, you know, the Tumblr witch is someone who uses kind of spells and potions to perform a sort of of witchiness or kind of bring a more magical, mystical touch uh, to to her life, uh, to your life. Um, do you see the Tumblr witch as someone who might be having an enchanted life or, or helping connect people um, to their disenchantments? Uh, well, I've not actually heard the term Tumblr witch, but I, I, know, I think I know the architect that you're okay. just the person that you're yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about. Um, and yeah, I suppose I would see it as in a sense kind of shorting the batteries because, you know, it gets people hooked on this way of being. It becomes a kind of role they adopt and it stops them from delving more deeply and, you know, into real and meaningful engagements with the world. And mm -hmm. it's all a focus on image and accessories. It's a kind of fakery. It's all virtual. It all takes place inside your head. And that can be a very dull place to be stuck in. You know, the world is the interesting place. Yeah. Turn the computer off, go outside, leave the smartphone at home, talk to a crow, tell a story to a stone. You, you never know what they might tell you in return. Tell a story to a stone. I love it. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you so much, Sharon, for, for joining us on the show. <laughs> Listeners, you can pick up Sharon's book, The Enchanted Life, Unlocking the Mystery of Every Day at bookstores and online in Canada. It is published by Anansi Press, and it just it just came out here last week. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye. And you can also follow Twitter or sh- follow Sharon, Sharon on Twitter at, at Sharon Blackie. All right, let's talk books. Sure. Hey Vass, what are you reading? Oh. Um, I just read a book called The Amateurs by uh, Liz Harmer. She's used to be Toronto based and it's kind of a near future tech dystopia where the world has been depopulated basically by a giant tech company that made these things called ports, I mean portals, and they have um, porticians who install them for you. And kind of in the first wave of of depopulation, it was like very rich people would buy a port and basically it promised you that you can travel to a time you desire. Like you can go back in time, you can like go relive like a great memory. And it plays on our kind of the seductiveness of you know, not being in the present. The thing is, people don't come back. And the tech company, like, hires actors to say that people came back because they kind of put the product out on the market in, like, classic tech way with, like, maybe some bugs in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, um, basically, you read about how life has kind of eroded. Anyway, I thought it was really interesting. Like, life has kind of eroded because you... You don't notice people disappearing at first, but suddenly you like your barber's gone and like the food supply system is not really going that well and things are just breaking. And you also realize that no one has the knowledge like these people, the kind of Luddite people who are able to resist the port um, openly. The enchanted people. The enchanted people <laughs> openly joke. They're just like, yeah, but we survived, but we don't know how to do anything. <laughs> They're like looking for chickens and just being like, oh, man. Um, so yeah, you should check it out. But What's it'd be the, cool to have Liz on the show, Liz Harmer. Sure. And you said that she yeah used to be Toronto based. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It reminds me of what was that movie that came out maybe like six months ago where you could shrink, you could become really rich if you just shrunk very small. <laughs> the you, Matt Damon thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know the premise of that. It's something like that. Um, basically, yeah, using technology to like trade up to a better life, but it actually being a <laughs> bit of a mess. Uh, I am reading Her Body and Other Parties. It's by Carmen Maria Machado. Did you read it? I think no. I recommended it to you, but maybe Sorry. you didn't. Unless you, you gave it to me, I didn't read it. I Sorry. will give it to you when I'm okay. done. Uh, it's a book of short stories that was uh, very well regarded when it came out last year, uh, shortlisted for the National Book Award Fiction Prize. Uh, it's uh, about women, and it's a uh, queerness and uh uh, that Law and Order SVU show that lots of people like. Uh, I'm not all mm. the way through, but it's it's a beautiful, very polished, uh, very unique book of short stories. So I recommend. Sounds great. Nice to talk to you about books. We haven't made it to this segment in a while. I know. We've been brimming over and just yelling out a song at the end. Well, let's do that then. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Detangled and uh, in particular for putting up with my sniffling, coughing and exiting the studio during segment one. <laughs> um, we're live here at the University of Toronto every week, every Monday morning, live from 9 to 10 a.m. Democracy Now! with the formidable Amy Goodman is up next on CIUT 89.5 FM. We will leave you with Country by Porches. When the air hit my face And it smelled like the truth I saw you in the lake I saw you in the lake I lay flat 